This is TSC Now, a podcast by the Tuber Sclerosis Alliance. Hello, and welcome to TSC Now, a podcast from the TS Alliance. As always, I'm your host, Dan Klein. April is both World Autism Month and Autism Acceptance Month. So what better time to dive deeper into one of the more pervasive manifestations in TSC and the research being conducted to unravel the mysteries linking autism spectrum disorder and TSC. Autism spectrum disorder occurs in nearly 50% of children with TSC, significantly higher than the rate in the general population, which is roughly 1%. Additionally, there's a very clear link between autism spectrum disorder and cognitive impairment in TSC. Autism spectrum disorder also falls under the umbrella of TSC-associated neuropsychiatric disorders, otherwise known as TAND. To better understand the connection between autism and TSC, and how ongoing research can help expand our knowledge of autism, not just in TSC, but more generally, I spoke to Dr. Mustafa Sahin, director of both the Translational Neuroscience Center and the Multidisciplinary Tuberous Sclerosis Program at Boston Children's Hospital and professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Sahin is one of the principal investigators of the TSC Autism Center of Excellence Research Network, otherwise known as TASERN. TASERN is a coalition of five research hospitals, Boston Children's Hospital, Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, University of Alabama at Birmingham, University of California at Los Angeles, and University of Texas at Houston. The group was formed in 2012 and received a grant from the NIH in part to better understand autism in TSC and begin to identify potential biomarkers that could predict what children were at higher risk of cognitive manifestations. From that initial grant, 80 papers have been published on a wide range of discoveries in TSC. To tell us more about the research that has been done to date and what's ongoing, here's Dr. Sahin. We're now joined by Dr. Mustafa Sahin, one of the primary investigators of the TSC Autism Center of Excellence Research Network, also known as TASERN. Dr. Sahin, thank you so much for talking to me today. My pleasure. So what is TASERN and what are the goals of that network? So TASERN is a clinical trial network for tuberous sclerosis. And prior to 2012, most of the research on tuberous sclerosis was done at individual centers. Each center would have 20, 30, 40, 50 patients that they would study. And for the most part, the studies would be underpowered to show effectiveness of potential treatments or the validity of a particular finding. So what we wanted to do was to collect a large number of patients throughout the United States. And that was the main goal of TASERN. We combined the efforts of five large tuberous sclerosis clinics that are geographically distributed throughout the United States. These were University of California in Los Angeles, McGovern Medical School in Houston, Texas, University of Alabama in Birmingham, Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and Boston Children's Hospital. So these five geographically distributed clinics decided to work together and identify patients with tuberous sclerosis as close to birth as possible, such that we could collect a cohort of patients between zero and three years of age and investigate them deeply for any of the red flags of autism. Since this is a grant that was provided by the NIH to study autism, we focused in that early development of autism in the TSC population. As you know, there's approximately 50% chance of developing autism if you're born with tuberous sclerosis. So we wanted to identify why and how that 50% of the children went on to develop autism. So what we did was to identify patients early in life, usually due to the presence of the heart tumors, and then to 
prospectively identical imaging studies, identical MRI studies, EEG acquisition, as well as neuropsychological assessment sequentially until the children were three years of age. And our goal was to see if we could identify biomarkers or red flags of autism early in life. So you mentioned that term biomarkers. Generally speaking, what is a biomarker? And then within autism, what are some of the potential biomarkers in TSC specifically? So biomarker is actually short for biological marker. It's something that can be objectively measured and it's a sign of either a normal or abnormal process. It can be a condition or a disease. In this case, in tuberous sclerosis, we are looking for biomarkers of autism, anything we can objectively measure. Now, biomarkers can be in different forms. You can have biomarkers in blood, bodily fluids, things like cholesterol has been used, for instance, to study cardiovascular health. For autism, we are not aware of any biomarkers that we can measure in a patient's blood. There's no gene test, there's no blood test that can be done to diagnose either the condition of autism itself or the severity of autism. So most people have tried to use tests that are closer to the brain function, either the structure or the function of the brain. So the two areas of biomarkers that we've studied in this clinical trial network is MRI, especially the connectivity of the brain cells that you can measure on MRI called diffusion MRI scans. And the second one is the EEG that is looking for function of the different brain regions and how they are connected to each other. So we've tried to correlate both the imaging and the EEG findings with the presence or absence of autism symptoms in the children. Since this consortium came together almost a decade ago, what progress has been made? And can you tell me a little bit about some of the studies the group has conducted? Yeah, it's really remarkable that we, as I said, we got this grant from the NIH in 2012, and we started the work in around 2013. And that particular grant has expired, but it has led to 80 papers, 80 scientific publications, either directly or indirectly. And it has also led to other funding opportunities that we're currently actively working on. I won't mention all 80 of the publications, but I'll focus on a couple of publications that have been, I think, in my mind, influential. So one of the observations that we had previously had before we started the grant that was done just at our center in Boston Children's was that children with autism and tuberous sclerosis seem to have less organization of a particular brain tract called corpus callosum. Corpus callosum is a major brain tract between the right and left hemisphere. And if you do a diffusion MRI, you can look at the structure of the corpus quite specifically. What we had found in our population of patients here in Boston was that that brain tract was not well formed in children that had symptoms of autism with tuberculosis versus those that did not have them. But this was obviously a small study, relatively small study of about 40 patients, and we wanted to look at a much bigger population. So as I mentioned, in TASERN, we collected a much larger group of patients, actually 165 infants born with TSC around the country, and we had 378 MRIs from these 165 plus patients. So we really had a very rich data set to ask the same question. Does the corpus callosum look different in children with TSA that will go on to develop autism versus those that will not go on to develop autism? And the answer seems to be yes. So we were able to validate our previous finding in this much bigger population. So in that sense, having this rich data set has been incredibly helpful. From these 165 infants, we also did EEG acquisition. We have over 900 EEGs. Again, a very rich data set in the same patients over time as they are growing. So there have been a number of EEG studies that came out. One of the most influential ones was led by Martina Bevin and Joyce Wu. And what they showed was that before the clinical seizures start, 
the EEG becomes abnormal. And you can see these interictal discharges on the EEG that are a precursor of clinical seizures. And on the whole, the EEG becomes abnormal around four months of age, and the clinical seizures start roughly between six and seven months as a group. So there's a, about a two to three month window of opportunity to potentially intervene during that period. So that led to another NIH grant that Martina Bevan is the PI on that is called PREVENT. And in that study, as many of you probably heard, we're using a drug called Vigabitrin and comparing its use early when the EG becomes abnormal versus later when the clinical seizures start to see if we can improve the clinical outcome of the children at 24 and 36 months. So that study is close to en enrollment right now, but we're still waiting for the kids to reach the 36-month age limit so we can actually look at the outcome measure. So that's another study that really had its roots in the TASERN project. We looked at a few other important aspects that have to do with infantile spasms. That's the seizure type that's commonly seen in tuberous sclerosis. One of the questions we asked was, can we predict predict which children will go on to develop infantile spasms from their EEG before the spasms start. And Peter Davis, a, a junior investigator at Boston, looked at the whole data set and showed that the kids that will go on to develop infantile spasms had abnormal connectivity early in life before clinical seizures start. So we are hoping EEG biomarkers like this may actually give us warning about the type of seizure, especially infantile spasms in a child that is a high risk for infantile spasms and one that might be starting. Another study by Alex Cohen and Julian Peters looked at the location of the tubers and which tubers and which locations were most highly correlated with the presence of infantile spasms in a child with tuberous sclerosis. And this was a really puzzling question. As you know, infantile spasms are generalized type of seizures, but in tuberous sclerosis, we have these focal lesions in different parts of the brain. So why do focal lesions result in a generalized type of epilepsy? Has always been puzzling child neurologists. And what Alex and Julian showed was that the location of the tubers that are most connected to the part of the brain in the basal ganglia called globus pallidus were the ones that were most correlated with infantile spasms. So, you know, our very early infant study in tuberous sclerosis may actually give us some fundamental insights about what causes infantile spasms in general, not just in tuberous sclerosis, but in other conditions as well. Finally, I want to mention one other study that was led by UCLA group, and they looked at the dosage of Vigabitrin in our 160 children with tuberous sclerosis, and they showed that children that were getting a higher dose of Vigabitrin were more likely to maintain seizure control than those that were getting lower dose of Vigabitrin, suggesting that the amount of Vigabitrin that was prescribed might be quite important in long-term seizure control. So these are some of the both scientifically intriguing insights, but also potentially clinically relevant insights that have come out of the TASERN study. And these are just some of the papers that I mentioned out of the total of 80 that have contributed to the scientific literature so far. You mentioned early on that the incidence of autism in TSC is much higher than the general population. Nearly 50% of people with TSC will have autism. Right. Is autism in TSC similar to autism in the general population? That's a great question. And we wondered about that for many years. My hunch from starting to see patients with tuberous sclerosis as a junior attending at Boston Children's was that the behavioral phenotype looked very similar to me. So if I did not pay attention to the patient angiofibromas of a patient in my clinic visit, I couldn't tell whether they would have tuberous sclerosis or not because that behavioral manifestations looked very similar to me. But that obviously was an anecdote. Luckily, more scientific studies have been done since then, first by 
Patrick Bolton in United Kingdom, and then more recently by Shafali Jesti, who left Boston Children's and started her own lab at UCLA. And what she did was to use a scientific tool called ADAS that looks at different aspects of autism. And she used the subscales of ADAS to plot children with tuberous sclerosis and autism versus children that are not syndromic but also have autism. And if you look at those graphs, what you see is that those subscales look almost identical. Those two traces look very similar to each other. So the behavioral manifestations of autism in TSC and those with ATA syndrome and autism look very, very similar. So from everything we can tell, autism in TSC behaviorally is identical to the best of our knowledge to non-syndromic autism. Because of that, how can we apply what we learn about autism and TSC and use that to expand our knowledge of autism generally. So that's exactly what the goal of TASERN was from the very beginning. Are there potential biomarkers that we can identify in TSC that might be relevant to children outside of TSC that are affected with autism? One of them is these EEG biomarkers that I mentioned and the MRI biomarkers. Do they apply to those that have forms of autism that are not syndromic or whose cause is not so far identified? That study needs to be evaluated still. One thing we've done following the TASERN study is that we We've been able to obtain funding from the NIH for another consortium called Developmental Synaptopathies Consortium. And that's the particular rare disease grant is looking at three different disorders highly associated with autism, tuberous sclerosis, T10, and Shank 3 mutations. And we're comparing the behavioral manifestations as well as imaging and EEG across to three disorders. And our goal is to look at the similarities and differences between those disorders. So this kind of a comparative autophysiology of autism syndromes, I think will be very important going forward. The other thing we have tried to learn from tuberous sclerosis that might have important implications for autism in general is, is there a sensitive period for treating autism? In TSC children, like I said, we might be able to identify risk factors like abnormal EEG or MRI relatively early on. And is there an opportunity to treat those symptoms early in life and make an impact in development? The PREVENT study that Dr. Bevan is leading right now is one aspect using bigabutin as a drug that may have an effect on epilepsy, but also on developmental outcome. As you know, our colleagues in Europe called Epistop Group have done a similar study and have published their results. And they see very promising results with bigabutin treatment that they can reduce the epilepsy phenotype significantly, but they don't see a significant improvement in the developmental outcome so far. So we'll have to see if prevent shows a similar or different outcome. But these kind of studies in genetic cause of autism will be, I think, very important in identifying whether there are critical periods for treatment of autism. So in sharing some of the publications that have come out of TASR, and you talked about a couple of studies that looked at both epilepsy and specifically infantile spasms. What is the relationship between epilepsy and autism in TSC? The relationship between autism and epilepsy in TSC has been very difficult to differentiate from each other because, as you know, many of the patients, up to 90% will have seizures and about half of the patients will have autism. So it's been very hard to look at the individual effects on those two aspects. One of the studies that came out of TASERN was led by Jamie Keppel, who was at Cincinnati Children's, who now is at the University of North Carolina. And what she did was to study our cohort of patients and analyze their epilepsy and their developmental outcomes. So really looking at the severity of the epilepsy and the severity of the autism symptoms. And what she showed was that all patients with a history of infantile spasms performed worse on developmental assessments. So it seemed like infantile spasms correlates with worse developmental outcomes. And higher seizure frequency also correlated with 
uh, poorer developmental outcomes or at all the time points that she looked at. So these studies suggest that you know worse seizures and especially the presence of infantile spasms is associated with developmental outcomes that's poorer. Of course, it doesn't say whether there's a causal relationship. It's possible whatever causes the seizures is also what's causing the developmental outcome or that one of the factors such as the seizure is worsening the developmental outcome. We don't know how to differentiate those two possibilities. Things like Pepistop study and the PREVENT study might be one way of differentiating them. If there's a drug that works on one aspect like epilepsy, but doesn't significantly improve the developmental outcome, that might suggest that the causal relationship is not that clear, that if you treat the seizures, you're going to definitely improve the developmental outcome. So we're still studying that very carefully and also looking at the possibility of other treatment options. So you could imagine that bigabitin might be particularly helpful for seizures, but there might be other pharmacological treatments such as mTOR inhibitors that could be helpful for improving not just the seizures, but also the developmental outcome. And Darcy Kruger at Cincinnati Children's is leading a study called STOP2 that is hopefully in the near future going to look at that question as well. And you mentioned that consortium with the two other rare diseases. Is that correlation between epilepsy and autism applicable to other rare refractory epilepsies? Not all of them exactly. So we see some conditions such as P10 mutations where there's a significant incidence of autism, but seizures are relatively rare. And there are other conditions such as Shank 3 mutations where intellectual disability and autism symptoms uh, can be quite frequent. But seizures are very heterogeneous. Some patients have severe seizures and some patients have less severe seizures or no seizures and they can still have intellectual disability. So it is not a one-to-one correlation at this point. So my final question for you is, what are the big remaining questions researchers are trying to tackle around autism and TSC? And what are some studies that are going on right now that you're really excited about? Well, I'm extremely excited about the PREVENT study, obviously, that we've been working on for a number of years with Martin and Bedwin and the 14 sites around the country. And that has been not only a really well-designed study, and has been maintained despite COVID pandemic, I should say. But also it shows the feasibility of doing these kind of large studies in the infants with tuberous sclerosis using a treatment arm. I'm still very excited about the possibility of one day being able to stratify the kids born with tuberous sclerosis into high risk versus low risk group. And depending on their risk, offering them different treatment options, whether they need a pharmacological agent or not, may be determined by their risk ratio. And a child with a low risk may benefit from just behavioral interventions, whereas a child particularly high risk may need both behavioral interventions and pharmacological treatment, for instance. We don't have that level of precision yet. One of the things we are looking at right now using the developmental synaptopsis consortium grant is what is the manifestation of tuberculosis older ages? So we have expanded our studies in into adulthood, middle-aged, up to 45 years of age. And it would be nice to see sort of what is the cognitive and behavioral issues that might arise later in life that we really haven't studied very well in the TSC community. And then finally, going early in life, if you will, you know, cardiac rhabdomyomas have been a good biomarker for detecting tuberculosis, but not all babies born with TSC have cardiac rhabdomyomas. And would it be possible to have a newborn screen for tuberculosis if we really have effective treatments early in life, for instance, if the Vigabitin seems to be effective in the PREVENT trial, do we want to make sure that we catch every baby born with TSC and afford them the ability to choose an intervention such as Vigabitin if their EEG becomes abnormal? So those are the very practical and near-term studies that are ongoing or will be ongoing in the field very soon. And I'm very excited about the fact that from 2012 to 2021, we've come a very long way, very quickly, actually, I think in the care of individuals, especially young young children with tuberous sclerosis. Yes, it's definitely exciting how 
far we've come and to have things like newborn screening and personalized medicine on the horizon is also very exciting. Now, one other thing I should say is that this study couldn't really have been possible without my co-PI, Darcy Kruger from Cincinnati Children and the three PIs from UCLA, Texas and Birmingham. I think it was in a sense a proof of principle that different centers could work well together and could really collaborate in the TSC field. That's since grown into this prevent study with 14 sites. I think in the future, this is going to be the gold standard. Any study that is going to really be meaningful in the TSC field will need to have investigators from a large number of sites with experience in doing clinical trials who can collaborate and gather large cohorts of patients uh, for these kind of studies. And then finally, none of this could be done without the families, I should say. The courage and the foresight of the families for being interested in these studies and having their family members involved in these studies, enrolling their children in these studies has been crucial to the success of where we've come so far, both the TS Alliance and I think the TS community in general does an amazing job of keeping up with the science and supporting the science in a very meaningful, tangible way, not just with funding, but really being engaged and staying up to date with the advances. And we couldn't have made this progress without the TSC community in general. Well said. We're so grateful for you and the other PIs for your collaboration, for the incredible progress you've made since 2012. And thank you for talking to me today and sharing some of the studies that have come out of that so far and what's right on the horizon. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. It was a pleasure talking with you. My thanks again to Dr. Sahin for sharing some of the incredible work that has come out of TASERN and what's on the horizon in terms of our understanding of autism in TSC. I'll post a link in the show notes to the TASERN site where you can see abstracts to some of the publications from the cohort, as well as a link to the Developmental Synaptopathies Consortium website so you can learn more about the current efforts to research autism in TSC, Phelan-McDermid syndrome, and P10 heratoma tumor syndrome. Earlier this month, as part of the TS Alliance's 2021 e-webinar series, we hosted a webinar featuring Drs. Shafali Jesti and Connie Kasari of UCLA sharing an update on ongoing studies looking at early interventions for TSC-associated neuropsychiatric disorders, specifically focusing on autism spectrum disorder in TSC. I'll post a link to the recording in the show notes. Finally, we are officially two weeks away from our Step Forward to Cure TSC Global Virtual Walk, Run, Ride on May 15th and 16th coinciding with TSC Global Awareness Day. This historic worldwide event will bring together thousands of people from across the globe, all working together to champion the Tuberous Sclerosis Alliance's effort to fund groundbreaking research, offer critically needed support programs, and increase awareness. Our goal is to raise $700,000 toward that mission, and there is still time for you to donate, register, and fundraise to help us hit this goal. However you participate, your support will make a tangible difference in the lives of everyone with TSC. Learn the many ways you can get involved at www.stepforwardtocuretsc.org. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the sponsors of this incredible event. Our national sponsors are Greenwich Biosciences, Marinus Pharmaceuticals, Nobel Pharma, Novartis, UCB Inc., Upshur Smith Laboratories, Special Care by Mass Mutual, and Leva Nova. Our local sponsors are Accurate Healthcare, Hightower Dermatology, Hightower Veterinarian Services, Michael P. Wilson Inc. Real Estate Appraisers, Stanford Children's Health, CRD Associates, Saboba Foundation, Level Up Drywall, Clace & Co. Real Estate, Carolina Tailwinds Bicycle Vacations, and Seizure Tracker. 
Thank you all for championing this amazing event and for your unwavering support of the TSC community. That will do it for this episode of TSC Now. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes and rate us wherever you listen so others can find this podcast. And I will see you at the Global Virtual Walk Run Ride. Thank you for listening to TSC Now. Our theme song is Take Charge by Young Presidents. You can find all our episodes at tsalliance.org slash tscnow. Thanks for listening.